2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Please give your full attention to God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. There's an old Jesuit proverb that says, give me a boy until he is seven and I will show you the man. That proverb speaks to the vital importance of the early training that goes on in our children's lives. As I think back on my years as a child and also my many years in parenting young children, I might bump that age up to maybe 14 or 15 because I also recognize that middle school is a very important and formative time in the lives of children. But it is true that by the time you get into high school and college age, much of who you are, much of your worldview, much of your values is pretty well set. Either way, whether we're talking seven or 14, we as parents know, if we've had any experience in this at all, we know that working with children and parenting children is a lot like working with cement. Early on, they're very easy to form. But the more time goes by, the older they get, the more they get set and hardened in their ways. You need to work fast to get them trained the way that the Lord would have them trained. This can lead us to despair of change especially those of us who are at later stages in life, you can despair of ever seeing real change. There's so many things about you that seem set in concrete. I remember reading an article a couple years ago in the Atlantic magazine, and the title of the, of the article basically tells the whole story of the article. It's, the title was this, there's no such thing as free will, but we're better off believing in it anyway. And the scary thing was, this is written from a scientific perspective, very strongly advocating for what we would call determinism. That we don't have free will. That we are basically captive to our biology. Listen to some of the, I'll give you the gist of it, just a couple of paragraphs from the article. The article says, today the assumption of free will permeates the popular culture and underpins the American dream. The belief that anyone can make something of themselves no matter what their start in life. But, the article goes on to say, the challenge posed by neuroscience is radical. It describes the brain as a physical system like any other and suggests that we can no more will it to operate in a particular way than we can will our heart to beat. 
The contemporary scientific image of human behavior is one of neurons firing, causing other neurons to fire, causing our thoughts and deeds in an unbroken chain that stretches back to our birth and beyond. In principle, we are therefore completely predictable. If we could understand any individual's brain architecture and chemistry well enough, we could, in theory, predict that individual's response to any given stimulus with 100% accuracy. That's what much of the scientific community believes. There is no free will. All of life is cause and effect. And you are pre-programmed to be who you are by biology and genetics. What's interesting is in the article, as you saw in the title of the article, is they recognize the dark implications of what they believe to be true. To quote the article again, it says, if moral responsibility depends on faith in our own agency, our own ability to change ourselves, if moral responsibility depends on faith in our own agency, then belief in determinism spreads as belief in determinism spreads, we will become morally irresponsible. In other words, if you believe that you are predetermined to make all the choices and to respond to all the stimuli in your life, then you're not morally responsible for what you do. Their answer to the question is yes. That is the implication of believing in biological determinism. That is the implication of it. That's why we need to do everything we can, according to the article, to make sure people continue to believe in the myth of free will. Because otherwise, everything will go to waste. Everything will go to pot in this culture. I have good news for all of those people this morning. We, as a church, have good news for an increasing number of people that believe such a thing. We can change at any stage of life, even at death's door. We can experience radical change. That's because we are not just the result of our biology and our genetics. We are created in the image of God. We are both body and soul. And the scriptures tell us that we can change at any stage of life. The scriptures teach us, yes, we are born slaves to our sinful nature. So there is a very real sense in which we don't have free will as we're born into the world because we're born slaves to sin. We are predetermined to love sin and to hate God. That's what we're predetermined to do. But our creator has provided a way for us to be changed. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God sent his only son into the world to bear the penalty of our sin and to be raised from the dead, to give us life, to give us new life, to give us a new birth, a spiritual rebirth, which will change us from the very root of who we are. Second Timothy begins with a picture of transformation. It's Paul talking to his beloved disciple, Timothy. And as he thinks upon Timothy as he talks about Timothy, what we see there are the forces that God uses to shape somebody into a disciple at whatever stage of life they're in. A little bit of the background, 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul at a very dark time in his life. 
And you have to understand that contrast. We just finished studying first, the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And in that letter, Paul's writing as a free man. He had already been in prison in, in Rome. That's how the book of Acts ends the story of Paul's life. In Rome, he is in prison in Acts chapter 28 as the book ends. But that imprisonment was pretty comfortable for Paul comparatively. In that imprisonment, it says he was under house arrest. So he's able to stay in his own place and he is able to freely receive visitors to go on with his preaching and teaching. After that imprisonment, he was released and went back to his traveling and his ministry. And it's during that period of time that he writes the first letter that he wrote to Timothy that we just finished studying. But after that period of time, Paul was again arrested and he was taken to Rome and he was imprisoned, this time thrown into one of the, the worst of Roman prisons, the dungeon. It's a, it was a cold, dark place that Paul was being kept in prison. His trial has been completed as he writes this second letter to Timothy. He has been found guilty by the state. And he has been sentenced to death. And that death could come at any moment. When you face death, all of your life takes on a whole different perspective. And the things that are really important become more clear to those who know the Lord. During those long and difficult days in the midst of that, that dungeon, Paul prays for the church and he prays for those that are close to him. And then he writes this very personal letter to Timothy, probably the last words, very likely the very last words that Timothy received from Paul his beloved mentor. Paul says in verse 4, and just notice the very personal language that's here. It shows how much Timothy meant to Paul. In verse 4, he says, As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Probably the last time that Timothy had, had literally seen Paul, he realized that Paul was coming to the end of his ministry, that death was imminent, and he wept. And as Paul remembers that parting, he longs for one more opportunity to see Timothy face to face, and we don't know if it happened or not. But even beyond that, as we move into the rest of 2 Timothy, what we see is that Paul is concerned about the next generation of leadership in the church. The time of the apostles is coming to an end. And the spread of the gospel and the spread of the impact of the kingdom of Jesus Christ would depend upon a new generation of leaders who would not be the kind of apostles that Paul was and Peter was. They would not have the direct inspiration of the Spirit. Paul and Peter and John, they were directly, they received direct revelation from God, direct guidance from God, telling them what to do, what to say, and what to write down so that we have God's word in the New Testament scriptures. But that era is coming to an end. And so, as Paul is facing death, maybe within days, he's thinking about that passing on the baton to the next generation. And Timothy was his star pupil, the one he had trained and prepared for this moment. There are signals in this second letter that Paul writes that he's concerned for the spiritual well-being of Timothy. There's hints here that Timothy might have been in a period of what we, we in pastoral ministry, but I, I don't mean it's certainly not exclusive to pastoral ministry. It's, it's certainly true of any believer serving Christ, but we call it in pastoral ministry burnout. 
where we become weary in doing good, where we become weary in telling the truth. We become weary in resisting temptation. We become weary in facing opposition and persecution and false teachers. And you get a sense that Paul is concerned that this is where Timothy is because we saw back in 1 Timothy how he kept having to encourage him and challenge him to keep standing up against the false teachers in the church in Ephesus where he was ministering. And you get the sense that, that Timothy's battle-weary in this letter. And so Paul is continually encouraging him and preparing him, especially for the day when Paul wouldn't be there any longer. In this letter, Paul is going to challenge Timothy to guard the gospel. That's chapter 1. He's going to challenge him to suffer for the gospel. That's chapter 2. He's going to challenge him to persevere in the gospel. That's chapter 3. And he's going to challenge him to proclaim it faithfully as it has been transmitted to him, and that's chapter 4. As Paul faces death, that's what's most important to him. The people that he loved, but more than that, the gospel that saved him, the gospel that he preached, the gospel that would change the world. So to encourage Timothy, Paul writes to him to encourage him in his spiritual growth. And by, the way he does that is by mentioning four different influences in his growing is being shaped as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the first one is really himself. He points to himself, says, look at the role that I've played in your life, Timothy. He himself as a mentor. We're talking about four different kinds of mentors here. And here we're just talking about somebody who wasn't physically related to Timothy. Somebody he met after he had become a, a young adult who came into his life and became a mentor to Timothy. That was Paul. Look at verse 2. Paul calls Timothy my beloved child. Now Paul was a bachelor. Paul didn't have any natural children. But over and over again he calls Timothy his son. His beloved son. He embraced him as if he were his own child. And he had that kind of a father-son relationship with him. Even in ministry. Listen to the way that Paul talks about Timothy in a couple of his letters. First of all, in writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 4, Paul is talking to the Corinthian Christians and he talks about them being his children because he's the one who came preaching the gospel to them the first time. He's the one who planted the church in Corinth. And so in a very real sense, he was their spiritual father. But he specifically uh, points out Timothy as his beloved son who is being sent to them to minister to them. So listen to how Paul describes Timothy in that context. He says, I do, to the Corinthians, he says, I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Timothy was Paul's representative. Timothy had imitated Paul as Paul imitated Christ. And so Paul was confident to send Timothy to the Corinthians as newborn believers to say, you be like Timothy because Timothy's being like me because I'm being like Christ. That's mentorship. Over in Philippians chapter 2, he again describes the ministry of Timothy in this way as Paul prepares to send him to the Philippian church. He says in verse 19 of chapter 2, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered 
by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. It's that old apprentice system where a son would grow up working right beside his father from a very young age so that he could take over the father's business when the father's gone. And that's what's going on between Paul and Timothy. God uses mentors to disciple us. It's an essential element of the discipleship process that God brings people from outside of our context into our lives to lead us, to guide us, to train us, to imitate for us the ways of Christ. A mentor is someone who teaches you how to use the means of grace. We use that phrase a lot in the church. You heard Ben use it a little earlier. The means of grace are basically, these are the, the ways, the things according to scripture that God has given us to draw near to him and to be transformed. And so a mentor is someone who teaches you first and foremost the content of the word of God. Teaches you to read the word of God, to be able to understand what the word of God is saying, to be able to study the word of God, and then to apply the word of God to your life. That's what a mentor does for a disciple. Secondly, a mentor teaches you how to pray. He prays for you and teaches you by example how to pray, but he teaches you how to pray. First of all, by praying for you, he creates this bond, this supernatural bond. There's nothing like praying for another believer to bind you to that, for that person, to draw. You wonder where that warmth and, and intimacy came in the relationship between Paul and Timothy? Paul tells you in this very text, he tells you, I pray for you constantly night and day. You pray for somebody like that, God is going to interweave your souls together. You're going to have a warmth and an intimacy that kind of Paul's talking about. A real, deep, spiritual friendship that transforms your life. So pray with, a mentor prays with you and teaches you how to approach the throne of grace and pray yourself. Thirdly, a mentor teaches you how to worship. What does worship look like? What is worship? What's the essence of worship? It's so contrary to our old nature, we need someone to teach us what worship is like, what it's supposed to be. What is true worship? What is biblical worship? Not man-centered worship. And especially to teach us the sacraments what they mean, and to feed upon the sacraments as we observe them and as we receive them. And then finally, a mentor is someone who is your model of faith, someone who lives a Christian life in front of you so you know what it means to be a disciple, an example. Who have been the mentors in your life? Who are those people that God has sovereignly led into your life to do this for you, to teach you to make use of the means of grace, to grow as a disciple, to become more mature, to become more like Christ? If you don't have a mentor, find one. It is part of God's plan for shaping and molding you into who he's making you to be. You need at least one mentor. Better to have multiple mentors, but at least have one. Who are you mentoring if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? 
because everyone should have someone who's mentoring them, but also should have someone who's not as far along in their spiritual journey and walk as you are that you're mentoring. Who are you influencing that way? That's how the growth of the kingdom works. That's how the growth of disciples works, is through the mentoring process. It goes beyond those people who you literally have physical contact with and, and share life with. It also goes to those who impact you from, in a sense, afar, even chronologically from afar. Paul, in verse 3, talks about him serving the God as did his ancestors with a clear conscience. He points to his ancestors in the faith. Now, many of these also would have been Jewish ancestors, but those, it's not just those who had a physical genetic tie to him he's talking about. He's talking about those who are ancestors in the faith, fathers of the faith, mothers of the faith. He's reminding Timothy that the gospel that he preaches and the gospel that he's entrusting into the hands of Timothy is not a new religion. That Paul preaches the same gospel that they preached the Old Testament saints believed in. His ancestors in the faith are people like Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah. They too looked to the Messiah to provide redemption, to provide reconciliation with their God, to provide forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Paul says, I serve God just as my spiritual ancestors did. And he implies that great impact that these spiritual ancestors had upon him. In Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews gives a long list of Old Testament faithful saints, examples, who, those who live by faith, people like Abraham and Noah and the prophets. It lists a long list of those who live by faith. And then in chapter 12, it's verse 1 and 2, he says this as he talks about the impact of these people in his life and in the lives of true believers. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Yes, Jesus is our ultimate mentor. And we look to him alone as the standard for what discipleship looks like. We look to him alone for life. But we have these spiritual ancestors as a great cloud of witnesses. These great men and women of the faith who came before us that we can look to to encourage us, to guide us, to direct us, to show us what a disciple looks like. I didn't have much in the way of personal mentorship early in my life. I didn't have a pastor or an elder or a Bible study leader who came alongside me and showed me these things. And it, it, it was a handicap. It's a handicap in many ways. It still affects my life. That's why I say if you don't have mentors in your life, you need them. Believe me, I've been there. You need mentors. But I do have a ton of spiritual ancestors who have had a huge impact on my life. What I lacked in personal mentorship, God has helped to make up for through men like John Calvin. And Lou Natter gave me a hard time because I didn't mention in the first service Martin Luther. So I'll mention him now. John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Knox, Martin Lloyd-Jones, R.C. Sproul. People like that. C.S. Lewis, people that have formed my worldview. People that have taught me how to understand the scriptures. People that have given me a biblical theology to embrace life with. 
Those are available to any of us. We need mentors. But then Paul goes to another level of mentorship and he reminds Timothy of his first mentors, his family members. Look at verse 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. He's saying that there is that, what I call plan A, for the faith being handed on from generation to generation. Plan A is that parents and grandparents mentor children and grandchildren. We first met Timothy in Acts 16, and it says there that Timothy's mother was Jewish and a believer. What that means is she was raised Jewish, she was taught the Old Testament scriptures, she had an Old Testament faith, but probably Paul, when he came to Lystra, came and preached the gospel and she believed. And her mother also believed. So you have Eunice believing, her mother Lois believing, and then eventually Timothy believing. What you have there was a household where the father was missing. It says in Acts 16 that his father was a Greek, and that what he means there is that he was a pagan unbeliever. And so Timothy was raised by a godly mother who loved the Lord and loved the Word of God and a grandmother. We have, actually, Paul even describes that mentoring process over in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That was the work of Lois and Eunice in the life of Timothy. They taught him the holy scriptures. They built the foundation for his life. They gave him his worldview. They gave him his philosophy. They gave him his values by teaching him the scriptures. That's the main way that the kingdom grows. Praise God, and especially in a society that is quickly losing sight of what a family is, the whole idea of family is being lost. Thankfully, God does, even in our situation, work through extraordinary means and reaches people in extraordinary ways. He does use a plan B often to bring people to himself. So if you've been raised in a family where you weren't taught the scriptures, don't fear. God still, his spirit can work through any kind of extraordinary means. But his plan A is for a disciple of Christ to find a, a, another disciple of Christ, a man and a woman, and they are to marry, and they are to bear children, and they are to raise these children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They are to teach them the scriptures. That's plan A for growing the kingdom. That's plan A for spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. In light of that, parents, you have to embrace your responsibility before God to be your children's mentors. Grandparents, you need to embrace the responsibility before God to be the mentors to your grandchildren. You need to teach them how to receive in faith the means of grace that God has given to us, to receive the word of God, to read it, to study it, to understand it, to apply it to their lives. That's your responsibility. That's your first and foremost responsibility to teach them how to pray and to pray with them. That's your responsibility. To make sure that they are in worship with God's people regularly and learning how to worship. 
and teaching them how to live as part of the body of believers, to be part of a church where the scriptures are taught, where the gospel is preached. That's your responsibility. And it sounds simplistic to say that. I'm just realizing I live in a generation in the church where parents don't understand that by and large, where parents ignore that responsibility. It is good, believe me, it is really good to teach your children academics, to make sure that they are under the best teachers you can provide, that they learn all the subjects they need to learn in school. It is really important. It is really important that you teach your children how to be disciplined in sports, if they have that, that, the gifts, the athletic gifts to be in sports. It's important to teach your kids to develop and use their gifts in the arts, in music, in dance, in writing, if that's the gift they've been given. All that's good and important, but it's all secondary to your first responsibility to disciple them in the Word of God and to teach them what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And I'm just aware of the fact, and I know I talk to you parents all the time, you wrestle with the pressure that you have all these things that are expectations that are thrust upon you by your culture of what it means to raise your children. I just need to remind you this morning, make sure that you are teaching them the word of God, that you are teaching them the gospel, that you are praying with them, that you're worshiping with them. That is your first and foremost responsibility. And if you need to set aside some of those secondary things to get the first responsibility done, do it. It is most important. The third mentor that Paul mentions is found in verses six and seven. And that's the Holy Spirit. Praise God, because all of our human mentors are sinners like we are, and they're gonna screw up, and they're gonna fail, and they're gonna neglect us, and they're gonna lead us astray once in a while. But this mentor will never let you down. In verse six, Paul says, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, commentators wrestle with what is the gift of God that Paul refers to there. We get a hint that he's referring to uh, Timothy's ordination. By ordination, that's when the elders come and lay their hands on a young man when he's entering into, or an older man, any man that's entering into ministry, we ordain them to service. And, and that's, that's recognizing that they've been called by God to serve as a spiritual leader in the church. And so he mentions when you receive this gift, when the hands were laid upon you, when Paul's hands were laid upon him, when the elders laid their hands on him. So he's referring to ordination. Now, it could be then that he's referring to the gift of ministry. His ordination was a gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit called him to serve as a minister of the gospel. That could be the gift he's referring to. Other commentators think, no, there was some actual spiritual gift, some supernatural spiritual gift that was given to Timothy that enabled him to do the work of ministry. Once again, I said this a while ago on another passage. It doesn't matter. I think Paul may have had both things in mind when he said it. In both cases, he's pointing to the, the role and the work of the Holy Spirit in Timothy's life. That, Timothy, don't be discouraged. Timothy, don't lose heart. Timothy, don't be timid. Because you have the Holy Spirit. He has called you to this ministry. And he will be with you. And he will equip you and gift you to do the work that he's called you to do. We learned in the first letter that we studied of 1 Timothy that he was a young man who was timid and inexperienced and that he was facing great opposition in his ministry, dealing with tons of false teaching. So Paul goes on to say to him, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
Now, in the ESV, the, the spirit, the word spirit has a small S in the front of it. I think that actually should be a capital S because I think Paul there is referring to the Holy Spirit. In context, that makes much more sense. He's saying the Holy Spirit has been given to you. You no longer have to be timid, Timothy. You no longer have to be, to be fearful because of your inexperience or your personality. God has given you not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. Praise God that no matter what influences we have for good or for bad outside of us, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, every Christian has the Holy Spirit in you, with you, as your eternal, constant mentor. Jesus promised this back in John chapter 14. This is what he said. His disciples at that point were, were beginning to understand that he was not going to be with them forever. And so he says to them in John 14, beginning in verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit as a, as an, as a constant mentor, he's with you 24-7. The beauty of that is, is that unlike parents or Sunday school teachers or Bible study leaders, you know, we, we can lead a horse to water, but we can't make them drink in a sense that we can mentor somebody, but we can't make them want to be mentored. We can't make them understand. We can't make them, we can't change their heart. But the Holy Spirit can and he does. That's the Holy Spirit's work, is to change our heart as all of these influences come upon us, is to change our heart to guide us and direct us from within into the will of God for our lives. And that brings us to the final person who works in our mentorship as disciples, and that's we ourselves. Paul refers to the fact that Timothy has to take a very active and hardworking role in his own discipleship. Paul tells, tells Timothy in verse 6, fan into flame the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit. That as you fan into flame the gifts of the Holy Spirit at work within you, that produces boldness and love and self-control. And I love that image, and that's such a constant image in the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit is like fire. Even on the day of Pentecost, when tongues of fire came down upon the disciples, that, that the Holy Spirit is like a fire in your life that fuels your discipleship, that powers the engine of your discipleship, so to speak. But Paul says to Timothy, you've got to fan the flame. You've got to stoke the fire. You've got to work hard at it. Keep that fire burning hot. Timothy, that's your responsibility. You are your own mentor in that sense. I used to, we used to camp a lot when our kids were younger. And we would do tent camping and cabin camping and always the highlight in the center of the experience was making the fire where you'd cook your meals. And it's hard. If you've never done this, you know, those of us who are used to just turning a knob and fire pops up on our, our range, it's not easy to build a fire in, a, in one of those circles at a campground. And, and you know, I, I got, I, I guess, I, you know, I got the training. I, my parents told me how to do it. I became the guy in my family who made the fire. And it, it meant that I was basically, I had to focus on that fire the whole time. Because you've got to build it right. You've got to have all the right fire. You've got to have dry wood. You've got to have your kindling. You've got to build your little teepee or whatever method you use to get, make sure you've got the right airflow. And then as the fire burns, you've got to keep stoking it. You've got to keep fueling it. You've got to keep 
every, all the right elements in place so that that fire burns hot. And Paul is saying that, that that's what you need to do with your, the Holy Spirit in your life. There's elsewhere where Paul tells Christians, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we always puzzle over that because if you're a born again, if you're a believer, it's because you already have the Holy Spirit. So if you already have the Holy Spirit, how can you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul's acknowledging the fact that we let that fire burn low a lot of the time. We get distracted. We squelch the flame of the Holy Spirit in our lives with all the distractions of our life, all the worldly influences, all the things that, that pull us away from Christ. We allow the flame to go, to go low. They talk, we talk about salvation as being God's work, and it is from beginning to end. God initiates it, God carries it out, God completes it. And so there's a sense in which we talk about salvation is in theology we call it being monergistic. One person, one power, one, one active person cre- doing the work of salvation. God is saving us from beginning to end. But there is a sense when we talk about sanctification, acknowledging that, that it is all God's work, even the work of sanctification, of modeling us as a disciple, is, is his work. There is something different about being born again and being converted and being sanctified and becoming a more a disciple that's more like Jesus Christ. We t- sometimes use the word synergistic. We have to use it carefully because we don't mean that we contribute something and God contributes less. What we mean is that if God is working in us, what it does is it produce, produces work on our part. We work to fan the flame. We work to stoke the fire. We work at reading the Bible. And it is work. We work at praying. It is work. We work at at being faithful in worship. We work at using the gifts that God has given us and serving Christ. This is all hard work. So I asked the question this morning, what are you doing to mentor your own soul? Are you preaching the gospel yourself daily? Are you being faithful and being in the word? You cannot fan the flame. You cannot stoke the fire if you are not in the word on a regular basis and praying on a regular basis and serving and using your gifts on a regular basis. There's no, it's not brain surgery knowing what it means to be a faithful disciple to Jesus Christ. Make use of the means of grace, incorporate them into your life and work hard at being a disciple with the power that Christ gives us. That's that great promise in Philippians chapter 2. Paul describes the process beautifully, beginning in verse 12, where he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. That's that beautiful mystery that, yes, being a disciple is hard work on our part, and we've got to be committed to doing that hard work, but it is really God producing it within us in a way that we don't even fully comprehend. What are you doing to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What are you doing to develop and use the spiritual gifts that God has given you for service? Jesus told a parable of talents, and the whole point of that parable was that the guy, you know, people used their talents and had different, uh, bore different amounts of fruit, had more effectiveness depending on the talents they had. But the bottom line was, the point of the parable was, don't bury your talent. God has given, if you're, if you're a disciple of Christ, if you've been born again, you've been given spiritual gifts, at least one, to serve him. Don't bury your gifts. I'm going to wrap up just by uh, pointing out something you may not have noticed. On the front of your bulletin, you have, there's a picture of you. It's actually a picture of any faithful disciple. 
that logo. And if you're new to Oakwood, maybe you've never really, you've looked at that and never really thought about what it is. But that logo is a picture of a disciple. We developed that logo based on two passages of scripture. First passage was Isaiah 61. This is a passage that Jesus preached his first sermon from. And Jesus, it talks about the coming Messiah, how the Messiah would come to bring redemption, to bring salvation. But the result of it in Isaiah 61 is that we would become oaks of righteousness. And so you have that tree as a picture of an oak of righteousness. But also tied together with that is the beautiful Psalm 1, where it talks about a faithful disciple is like a tree, to quote it exactly, like a tree planted by streams of water. And so you see the water in front of the tree, but, but ultimately the roots of the tree are dug deep into the word of God. That's the Bible. That's the word of God. That's where you get, that's the, where you get this nutrients to your spiritual life. As you, as you grow roots deep down into the word of God, what happens is that your tree grows healthy, you begin to bear fruit, and your branches branch out so that your impact upon the world gets greater and greater. It's a picture of you as a disciple. I hope it's a picture of you as a disciple. But it's a disciple who is well-established in the means of grace that God has given to become the disciple that Christ has called you to be and to serve in his kingdom the way he's called you to serve. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so undeserving. We were your enemies. We were hostile to you in our minds and our hearts. And you invaded our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. You gave us new birth. You opened our spiritual eyes. You opened our spiritual ears. You changed our hearts. You took away the heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh that, that desires to know you, that desires to study your word, to become like Christ. This is all a gift of your grace. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation. And thank you for the continual presence of the spirit that you promised to be with us, to empower us, to give us boldness, to give us gifts that we can serve you. Father, I pray that we would search out mentors for ourselves and that we would search out people that, that we can lead and, and be a mentor to them. Lord, help us in our families, especially as parents and grandparents, to be faithful to mentor children and grandchildren. And Lord, I pray that we would be committed more as we leave this place this morning to doing the hard work of pursuing Christ, of, of pursuing his will, knowing his word and implementing it in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Father, thank you for the calling you've placed upon us and thank you for the hope of eternal life we have in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.